Good morning, everyone. I'm Nisha Jr. I teach at Temple University in Philadelphia, and I'd like to welcome you to this morning's session. This is a joint session of the status of persons with disabilities in the profession committee and the status of racial and ethnic minorities in the profession committee. This morning, our theme is Black Liberation Theologies of Disability. Some of our panelists have changed from what was originally printed in the program book, so I want to alert you to those changes. The first three panelists are with us, um, but we will not have Tamara Lomax, who was unable to attend, nor Cornell West. An addition to the program will be Garth Baker Fletcher. So we will start this morning with opening comments from each of the panelists. And I would ask them to introduce themselves in a way that they feel comfortable, and also in a way that explains their connection to and personal commitment to issues regarding black theology and disability. So our first speaker will be Kendrick Kemp, who is from Union Theological Seminary. Hi, good morning. Good morning. I'm, my name is Kendrick Kemp, and I'm, I'm gonna ask my friend Elizabeth to start my introduction off, please. At 21, my life changed drastically. I suffered a stroke, or CVA. It left me paralyzed. I couldn't talk or walk. Before this, I was the star athlete in my town. I won all state in basketball, county in football, and sectionals in track. Up until then, I rode on a magic carpet, and then it was like someone snatched it from under me, and I fell on my face. My life was over. I remember doctors saying I would not be able to talk or walk again. My mother stood beside me, comforted me, saying, it'll be all right. I didn't know what all right meant, but I believed in my mother. She wouldn't lie to me. Weeks went by. I relied on my family, church family, and friends. It was still hard, though, to ask for help. During my month-long start of recovery in the hospital, I prayed to God daily, even hourly. It was a time of wrestling with God. I remember asking God, if you help me to walk and talk, I will go anywhere. Where you send me, I'll go. After those 30 days, I left the hospital, even signed myself out. But people looked at me differently. I looked at myself differently. Going to church felt like I felt like an outcast. People wouldn't talk to me. They were scared of me. I didn't know what to say to them either. Two years later, I had another stroke. So the improvement I made after the first stroke was gone. I really wanted to give up after the second one, but I couldn't give up. There was something inside of me that wouldn't give up. God put in me the resilience and inner drive to keep going in the face of tragedy. After yet another recovery process, I started searching for an answer to why this happened. I never found it. But what I found instead fed my spirit. It was the work of Dr. James Cohn. Eventually, this got me out of the pit I was in. It gave me the fire to keep going in the midst of struggle. 
I'm still looking at Dr. Work, Cohn's work today. Thank you. Uh, I'm a recent graduate of Union Theological Seminary. I hold a Master's of Divinity and a Master's of Social Work. I spent most of my life living with a disability. Currently, I'm a social worker for an organization working with people living with disabilities and domestic abuse survivors. Last year, October 30th, I presented my groundbreaking thesis project entitled Black Liberation Theology of Disabilities. This work was birthed from the engagement with my, my mentor, Dr. James Cohn. It really informed my thinking and my theological lens. After talking to Dr. Julia Watts Besler after my thesis project, we discussed of having a panel on black liberation theology of the disabilities at AAR. She told me write a proposal. That's why we're here today. Thank you, Julia. I, I also want to thank the status of people with disabilities in the profession committee and the status of racial and ethnic minorities committee and the panelists, the brilliant panelists we have on the panel today. Hi, Kendrick. It's good to finally meet you. How you doing? <laughs> Thank you, Kendrick. Our next speaker will be Garth Baker Fletcher, who is a retired professor from Texas College and a public theologian. And he joins us by Skype. Can anyone, everyone see me? Yes. yes. Uh, this is the third or fourth time I've used a Skype. Uh, Monica is one of those kind of people, as you know. She opens people up to experiences that they might be afraid of, but they're going to do it anyway. That's how she got my family to move from meat eaters to vegans. Thank you, Monica. And thank you, um, Religion and Disability Committee and Black Theology Committees. I just want to say this. Um, I am a person that I have to say um, differently from homosexuals, I came out as a disabled person. And I did that a few years back, about two or three years ago, because I finally realized after being operated on, after having um, parts of my body removed and artificial parts um, in place, that I was, in fact, a disabled person. I needed to stay longer and more and more and longer and longer in a wheelchair. And I was uh, unable, after having six operations in 2015, I was unable to walk without the aid of a walker or a wheelchair. 
So I, I've come to this learning, as it were, about more and more disabilities. In fact, when I was 15, I was diagnosed with loop, systemic lupus erythematosus. Now, that should have given me a warning, but at the time, lupus was considered a, a mysterious and strange malady that affected black women more than it did black men. As a matter of fact, for every 10 black women that got it, there was only one black male that got it. And for the women, it was a lethal disease. It killed. And so um, uh, that's that was my um, experience with it. And uh, the doctors told me that I'd be lucky to live to be 20. And then when I reached 20, they told me I'd be lucky to reach 25. And then when I was 25, uh, 35, no, 25, they told me that maybe I might even make it to 30. And on and on it went until finally I was 50. And the doctors smiled at me with a big, beautiful smile. And they said, well, you know what? Anybody that has lasted this long with lupus is probably going to live a regular, normal life. And I was really glad to hear that. But I was disturbed that the life was called normal life. So um, when I was in the hospital with these six operations in 2015, I began to write a book, um, a theodicy called Pain, Suffering, and Danger. And this theodicy I wrote, and I looked up all of the different things in the Bible that they say are the reasons why people are disabled or um, lame or sick or any of those other things. And then I began to apply those to reactions that I had as a disabled person. What I found was extraordinary. Um, uh, Say, for instance, 1 Peter. Am I going over time? I want to know if I'm get going over time. Hello? Yes. Yes. <laughs> I went over time? Okay, I can be quiet. I'll, I'll, I'll share the rest later. All right, yes, we'll have time for sharing in just a minute. So right now we're just doing introductions of the panelists in a way that they feel comfortable and asking them to explain their interest in and commitment to issues regarding disability and black theology. So our next panelist is Monica Coleman of Claremont School of Theology. Good morning. Good morning. I know, I know. Try it again. Um, good morning. Good morning. <laughs> um, my name is Monica A. Coleman, and um, I came to, I've come to uh, my interest in disability theology um, academically, as many people having read Nancy Eastland's, Eastland's, I never say it correctly. I can spell it, Eastland. Um, disabled guy. Easy, um, disabled God, and was like, "Oh my gosh, this is brilliant! Why hadn't I thought of this before?" Right, and it changed and affected the way I thought about theology, about um, the risen Christ, and um, my own personal investment comes early from my experience of living with the mental health challenge. Um, I share fairly publicly. I live with a kind of bipolar depression, bipolar two. Um, that I think of as a sometimes disabling condition. 
And I moved into theology because I saw that many of people in, in religion were looking at mental health challenges from the perspective of pastoral care and counseling, which is fine and great and wonderful, but I'm a theologian. And I wanted to be able to have more public conversations as compared to more one-on-one -on -one sessions. I wanted us to think about mental health challenges um, theologically, communally, and in wider spaces. And so my work is primarily around depressive conditions, unipolar, bipolar, other depressive conditions. Because um, I, I know a bit about some other mental health challenges, but those are the ones of my primary research. And so clearly there's my own personal investment <laughs> um, as a person who lives with a mental health challenge and the many ways that um, though I can be named as high functioning, um, also non-functioning. And so those are things that are important to me. And the sense that um, being very committed to embodied theology, very committed to contextual theology, and the knowledge that while we don't always talk about it, most of people I'll speak in the United States, many people, I don't know the percentage, move in and out of ability <laughs> all the time. And um, I was born with a genetic condition that affects my kneecaps. And so I actually own crutches and feel quite comfortable using them whenever I need to and adjusting behaviors around that. Um, and never having framed that as a disability till I had a very, very bad injury and was on crutches for about three to six months of a year. Um, but having adjusted a large part of my life around that as well. Um, so those are the ways in which I come to disability theology, and as a black liberation theologian, they naturally kind of come together for me. Next, we'll have a brief introduction from Pamela Leitze of Boston University. Thank you. Thank you for the invitation to be here. Um, I am here on the behalf of another. And that other is on the behalf of my son. My son, uh, during the time of my um, doctoral research, uh, I actually entered the PhD program thinking I would solve the grand problem of theodicy. And I was actually looking at evil and what people do during, you know, in terms of evil and particularly Hitler and his war camps. But while I was in uh, the doctoral program, my son, who was in the military, uh, was uh, part of the first troops to enter into Iraq uh, on the day of shock and awe. That day has forever changed the life of my family and the life of my son in particular. My son suffers from PTSD, has been diagnosed with PTSD, uh, has some other um, not visible uh, challenges, but uh, nonetheless challenges from his participation in war. Uh, in addition to that, I've been working uh, for some time with Rita Nakashima Brock, who is the director of the Soul Repair Center. I was one, on, on the, one of the first on uh, the board of directors as the uh, Soul Repair Center was really being designed uh, and served on the Soul Repair Center uh, speaking about moral injury uh, from my experience as a parent of a military veteran who has been in war. Uh, my son's story is chronicled in the books uh, Soul, Soul Repair by Rita Nakashima Brock and Gabriella Latini. 
And uh, so this, this, you know, I've been concerned about military veterans who come home uh, with what I and others call invisible wounds uh, and who will need care for the rest of their, their lives. Uh, for us, it has been an uphill struggle because uh, PTSD is one condition, but the military has not quite learned how to deal effectively with moral injury. And by moral injury, we mean uh, what is the impact of war and other conditions on the souls of military veterans. In my son's case, uh, someone who was born and raised someone we call a church baby. My son was and is um, a fantastic musician. He hasn't played for quite some time, but he was a fantastic musician. And the impact of war uh, on his, his internal, his internal um, being uh, has been um, quite a bit. Uh, and so I, I look at moral injury and PTSD from the perspective of a theologian looking at how the church uh, responds and in many cases does not respond to the needs of military veterans, particularly in its liturgy. And, and I, I'll probably say a little bit more about that later on. Mm -hmm. So thank you to all of our panelists for introducing themselves. They've raised a number of issues that we will discuss. We plan this as a roundtable conversation. So we will begin with a few questions for the panelists to discuss, and then we'll open it up to questions from the floor. So first question for any of the panelists to speak to would be, what resources can we draw from the various black religious traditions? So what resources are available to us as we talk about disability and black theology when we're thinking of black religious traditions, broadly construed. Um, how about we start with Garth? <laughs> Lovely. I was going to, as loquacious as I am, I was actually going to be quiet and silent to see what the direction was going to be. When I read that particular question, I began to remember about um, studying West African religious traditions. I began to remember uh, thinking about the Ifa, um, um, let's see, the Ifa religions and their Orishas, and how these Orishas were um, what we modern people would call various energy capacities that are uh, granted to peoples as they move through life, uh, with, as they are ill and are seeking health, or as they are angry and seeking to not be angry, or any number of things. So I thought about the African traditions uh, like uh, uh, that have come over with us, like Condoble, uh, like Santeria, and in our country, uh, the, the very, very uh, denigrated word voodoo. And so I thought about that. And then that moved me to think about the fact that uh, I found in Dallas a place called Pan-African uh, Connections. And part of their Sunday rituals are to teach people how to play the drum 
And as they learned to play the drum, to began to listen to the drum. And I thought to myself, you know, um, African-American people uh, probably were one of the first peoples, I'm not sure about this, but I think we were the first, uh, to add drumming to our worship in uh, churches. And when I listened to these amazing drum um, sessions, many times that would last for at least an hour, sometimes an hour and a half or two, I heard the amazing, um, mysterious almost, um, counter rhythms, um, uh, richness of the tones of the drum. And I thought to myself, this is fascinating. And when um, our European-American slavery brothers and slaver brothers and sisters heard this and listened to this and saw how the slaves were responding, they immediately, immediately uh, put out the word that there was no to be no drumming. And so I thought that that was interesting too, because drumming was a way to call the people to get themselves ready for their own self-liberation. So that's all I'll say right now. I could say some more about the civil rights movement, but I just wanted to talk about sort of some of the African things that we have retained. I, I will just say that I, I appreciate Garth bringing up drumming because my son is a percussionist. Uh, his cousin is a professional percussionist living in Tokyo um, quite a great drummer, so much so that he has his own drum uh, signature series um, uh, because of the, just the ingenuity of his musicianship. My son has followed in his cousin's footsteps uh, and has played drums for churches through from the time he, he could barely reach the pedals when he started playing drums. Uh, and, and so um, he, when he got back to the States... He went to Clark Atlanta University, and he began playing for the chapel uh, worship services at Clark Atlanta University. And he had a horrible, at, at one point during his time at Clark, the last semester of his time at Clark, he disappeared. Nobody knew where he was. Uh, and we couldn't find him, couldn't find him for days. And I contacted the chaplain, who was a friend of mine, because I, I said, maybe she can help me find my baby. And I called, and she said to me, she said, Pamela, he's been, he's been at worship. He's, he's been coming to worship, and uh, I'll let him know you're, you're looking for him. And it occurred to me that when nothing else was soothing for my son, that the music and this worship service is just, I mean, he loved playing gospel music. He loves the, he loved the music and, and worship. When nothing else could soothe him, um, being in church was a soothing place for him. That says something to me, uh, Garth, thank you, about the, how music can be very soothing um, in some ways uh, for person suffering, I think, not only from, in my son's case, from PTSD and moral injury. I'm not suggesting that that's the only avenue uh, or only resource, but I found that there is, there, there is something to black sacred and black gospel music uh, that has been um, um, uh, quite a help uh, in the lives of, I think, 
I know in the life of my, my son, when his father finally reached him, he was in terrible condition, uh, but he had been going to church. Now, there are other things I'll say about it, as I said before, but at least the musicality in the black church has been a resource for his disability. I want to start off by defining black liberation theology of disabilities. It encompasses black people living with disabilities and focus on their needs, society, uh, spiritually and economically. B, seeks to transform society to embrace black persons living with disability as an important part in the fabric of the society. C, understands a God who is disabled, a God paralyzed by the cross, a God not indifferent to suffering, but agreement with marginalized. Mm -hmm. I came from a black church and my father, my grandfather was pastors. My father was a pastor. My brothers are pastors. And my uncles are pastors, you know? So this was like home to me. My parents had a gospel group, a quartet. And, and then I, I heard that, you know, that music all my life. Upon, I became disabled, you know, I went back to the music because I couldn't walk or talk. You know, the strokes left me paralyzed, so I couldn't walk or talk. So I listened to the music. I remember my mother singing these songs like, I make a step, you know, and God will make a two. You know, it was, the song was called Make a Step. You know, I always go back to that, you know, because it did something to my spirit. When I couldn't walk or talk, it fed me. It led me, you know, and that's what I'll say right now. Context of mental health challenges, I'll share from two resources that um, I often refer to and I think are really important within black religious traditions. Um, one is I think spirituals are a really important and infrequently used resource for ways of remembering that we're not always happy religious people. Um, there's this image that if you're happy, you know, many black churches say things like too blessed to be stressed. Don't say that. Um, I hate that, but um, <laughs> right because you can be Me blessed too. and stressed, and so. Um, but we have this idea in so many aspects of across traditions that if you are a deeply religious and faithful person, that means that you're happy, 
because you're happy about it and you have this great faith. And yet we have within our tradition these beautiful renditions of people communally pouring out their souls and their grievances and their pains before God. I mean, Psalms do it, to, you know, but, you know, we have, you know, African-American communities, slave communities created spirituals. Um, and I grew up in churches that sang spirituals, right? And so that... Um, where you could moan and you could kind of, it wasn't just you, but everybody there was able to sit with pain and sit mm -hmm. with grief. Um, and so I think these are important resources for being able to affirm that, you know, we get sad, we get hurt, we get depressed. This is part of life. And we, you know, this is part of our community-based traditions. Um, another part is, I think particularly with mental health challenges, people forget that they're the embodied quality, <laughs> right? That it's that our brains are parts of our bodies and that mental health challenges affect how we sleep and how we eat and how we move and that um, it's more than kind of those little commercials where people take the pill and, and 30 seconds later they're leaping through the fields of daisies, right? Um, but that these are very embodied conditions and so I really think we can lift on the parts of our traditions that are embodied, right? Um, for those in Christian traditions, that may be charismatic worship. In um, many African-based traditions like Ifa, dance is prayer, right? Movement is actually how we communicate with the divine and how the divine communicates with us. And so um, drawing on, I think, the really embodied practices, particularly when you're in a situation where you cannot voice or find the words to explain how you feel or what's going on inside. That as we're able to connect with um, practices that are embodied, that sometimes is able to kind of remember that these are holistic conditions, right? And that these are parts of our traditions. Um, that it's not just something that we experience in rational form, right? But with our whole selves. So again, the first question was about resources that we can draw from varied black religious traditions when we're thinking of disability theology. And our panelists brought up issues of music, dance, black church, uh, and African traditional religions. Our second question is about the issue of elders. So in many black communities, elders are held in very high esteem. As issues of aging overlap with concerns regarding disabilities, how might we be more responsive and attentive to elders in black communities? You want me to start? Right. Okay. Um, I will quickly say two things. One, Almost every African-American church that I know, even the United Methodists and the Presbyterians, oftentimes will honor a particularly spiritual elder by giving them, and this is especially true for um, the older women in our, our church families, Mother, Mother Teresa, <laughs> Mother Sue. All these uh, claims for someone being a mother are ways to let the entire church know that not only is this person respected as a leader, 
but this person is to be looked at for the wisdom and the knowledge and the passing on of traditions. Um, what's interesting to me is that then the men are um, oftentimes, um, let's see, brought up to be a deacon. And so uh, we see older black men named deacon so-and-so, and we are told that we need to be silent uh, and to be respectful of these men because they have more wisdom. I remember in my home church, the deacons could correct any child. So I remember running up and down the stairs and Deacon Williams looking at me and saying, Garth, you stop now. I know your mother and father didn't raise you to be that way. And boy, that stopped me quickly. I mean, I stopped because Deacon Williams had told me that something, and he was a deacon. He was supposed to be respected. Now, quickly on the other side, the other side is that elders are often, like in our European-American communities, they too experience the trauma of being put in these terrible nursing homes where, as many people have recently said, their energy of life, their zest for life, slowly drains away. And to sort of give in to that particular normative ethic of European white Amer European American supremacy, I think is a terrible thing for us to follow. And we are going to have to find ways as a society to honor these people rather than shutting them away where we don't have to be bothered with them. Thank you. Relationships with the elders is very important. Not throwing away traditional worship styles and testimony services is very important where elders are able to express their needs and concerns is vital. Having a list of elders to ensure that their modes of communications in place is also important, especially in the digital age. Every, this is very practical speaking, if a church has, a, has the resources to provide carpools and bus services to ensure the elders get to the church or worship services or a doctor's appointments, it can be an option. Centering their stories and concerns by providing programming for the for them. Elders know knowing that clergy are present and able to listen and find, provide care and able to to get meet their needs. That's a very important for the life of the church. Black, black liberation theology makes sure the elders are met elders are met by looking at the community around them which they are engulfed in and finding resources 
to really help them move back and forth in life. Thank you. Perhaps um, it's, it's rather unspoken here, and that is the relationship of the black church to black, or black churches uh, to black communities. And so I do want to point out, uh, many, many of you have probably already seen the Pew Research data that, sh that, that shows that uh, black people are among the most religious people in, in the nation. That is that about uh, in the in 90 some percent or high 80 percent of black people in America consider themselves uh, religious and particularly within Christianity. Okay, and they attend church more than any other racial ethnic group in, in our nation. And when they're not in church, they consider themselves to be in commune with God. So religiosity, spirituality is a, is a, is a major part of what, um, of, of blackness in, in America. And I'm, I'm, I don't want to suggest that it, is, that, that it is not without exception. There certainly is some exception to it. But the connectedness to a black people to black churches is very important. And so it's difficult to tease out a conversation about elders and disabilities uh, uh, from the particular relationship that black people have had with churches throughout their lives. When they become, when, when black people become older, um, you know, they're seen as, as wisdom keepers, as keepers of a uh, history. Uh, uh, it was a time when we, we maintained an oral history uh, and, and the, the name griot is still used within African American communities. Uh, um, in my, my own experience, yes, I've had the experience of, of you know, respecting church mothers and, and elder black men known as deacons, or if not deacons, trustees in the church. And even though I was not a member, I mean a, a faithful member to the church growing up, the church was a part of our community. We respected the church. You didn't walk by the church and curse. You didn't behave immorally in front of the church. And people coming out from the church were respected. And largely, these were elders. And as elders uh, got older um, and, and, and had difficulty remembering the history, being able to, uh, and, and disability set in, they, they maintain a very honorific position, not only in the church, but in the, neighbor, in the neighborhood. And, and, and yes, some of, that is, some of that is diminishing, but not, I'm, I'm glad to, to say that at least in the communities uh, that I'm involved with, not thoroughly, not thoroughly. And uh, there is this desire, there, there, may, there re remains a, not a desire, there remains a, 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 an ethos in black communities where we talk about, we talk to one another as, uh, we talk to our children as we're getting older. So for instance, I tell my children, as I'm getting older, look, you, you all need to take care of me because my mind won't be as sharp as it once was and I won't be able to get around as much as I used to. And we have that in our gospel music. Shirley C's, a major gospel um, uh, vocalist, has several songs about taking care of your parents, 
uh, one song in particular was a hit of hers, I'm Your Mama, Don't Drive Me Away, you know? And so the, this is very much part of, of, of black culture. I think that the respect that black religious communities have for elders and those of us who are aging and whose embodiments are changing is the opportunity to be more inclusive of all people. Um, so I think of you know these older edifices that put in those seats on the um, on the stairs that go up like at a snail's pace to the sanctuary that's up high, um, thinking that, you know, there's like three people who need to use this um, because, oh, so-and-so got older and now needs to use this. And these are really opportunities to think, well, many people <laughs> um, can't get up four flights of stairs to a sanctuary for all types of reasons. Um, and so I, I'd like to, I would love to think of it in a way that because we respect our elders and because we're thinking about what are their needs, it can help us think, well, what are everyone else's needs? Why do we always say stand up if you feel this way? If you want to, and maybe if you, as you're able, but is that an integral part of what it means to worship? Um, coming from a perspective of mental health challenges and speaking particularly as the daughter of someone with a degenerative Alzheimer's um, and I'm the primary caregiver for my mother. Um, what is so meaningful for her but also challenging is um, that the music is the part she connects to. So the more traditional the church actually the better it is for her because she has to go, she still knows the song she grew up with, right? She still knows the things that are in from her childhood. She's like, there's this newfangled music. We had to change churches because she's like, I don't know this stuff, these songs. Like the theology is nice, but I don't remember the sermon. <laughs> so, but I do know the music. I know Blessed Assurance. I know Sweet, Sweet Spirit. I know those songs. Um, we moved. I moved her to a church that really only has three rooms in it, so she couldn't get lost, right? So thinking about what our spaces look like. Um, and I moved her to a church where I knew the assistant pastor understood mental health challenges and brain conditions um, because she happens to be a psychiatrist <laughs> but um, by day and minister by other day. Um, but that there needed to be someone there who didn't expect her to do the things that everyone else did, um, but still treated her like a person with dignity. Um, and it's not directly related to age, and she looks younger than she is, <laughs> um, but my mom still gets to have that respect. And so I think so much of, um, but you can't see it. She dresses up. <laughs> um, she looks probably 10 years younger than she is. Um, and there's no way you would know except for when you have a conversation with her or if people say, we want you to be prayer partners, and that's not something that she can do. And so I think, you know, if we were used to holding elders in high esteem, we also need to hold what it means for all the things that people who are aging come with. If you live long enough, you get depression because your friends die. 
Right. I remember one of my my cousin's grandmother lived into her 90s and she was always sad because everyone she knew was dying. Um, and depression is a natural response to that kind of loss and grief. And how do we respond to that? So we honor the elder and the mother who lives to 103, but we forget that most people 103 probably lost their children in some point, right? And so what does that loss look like in our communities and how do we honor that? So I think that we have opportunities to, to hold grief and to hold brain conditions and to hold mobility and space issues um, for entire communities because we respect how meaningful these issues become for those who are aging. So if you are just joining us, this is a joint session of the Status of Persons with Disabilities in the Profession Committee and also the Status of Racial and Ethnic Minorities in the Profession Committee. And our theme this morning is Black Liberation Theologies of Disability. So we had just been discussing elders and the honor and respect given to elders in black communities, especially within black churches and talked about the particular needs of elders regarding transportation, programming, accessibility, and the opportunity for us to be more inclusive um, for persons, not just elders. So our next question for the panel is, how does consideration of black disabled bodies change our theologies? So how does the consideration of black disabled bodies change or alter our theologies. What I didn't mention was that my, my youngest sister, now deceased, uh, was um, born mentally challenged, um, lived into her adult life. Um, uh, basically, a very grown woman, uh, but very grown woman who had very grown needs, uh, who was very aggressive in the way she moved and lived in the world. Uh, and yet, um, you know, we, we recognized as a family that we needed, that we, and we felt that we need to protect our sister because our sister was in many ways quite naive about, you know, how she could move about in the world and in a, in a very, in a, in a neighborhood that, you know, was, was high crime. Uh, so I entered into um, my theological studies, having grown up with a sister with mental with mental challenges, and so the language of theology was always language that I looked at from that perspective, uh, and and have always. Monica, you mentioned the being in the church and people saying, you know, turn to your neighbor, stand on you. All these all these gymnastics that happen in black churches. So I resist those gymnastics to this day because I, I have too many people in my family that could not um, participate in those kind of uh, liturgical gymnastics that go on in black churches for one reason or the other. And I consider myself fortunate to, to have had a sister, um, have had my sister because of the love that she had for the black church, for the church, even though the church did not always make room for her. So she, she loved the church. She participated in the choir. She, she was at the church before the pastor was at the church, and he mentioned that at her funeral. Uh, but there were ways in which the church was, was not uh, ex accessible to her. 
uh, and ways in which uh, and her and her body, she had diabetes also. So the black church is notorious. Black churches are notorious for having long worship services, which meant that my sister had to pack her lunch because she had to eat at particular times because of diabetes. We had to pack lunch so she could stay in church for the entirety of the worship service. And so I'm quite aware of the ways in which the church um, um, was not accessible to her um, and the ways in which the church remains unaccessible for a number of people. So I'll, I'll start right there. Mm -hmm. I have this feeling, and I wanted to share this with you, but when I learned some of the songs that have been kept from slavery, I was amazed at how those songs energized me to make, maintain and so I, I don't know. Let me just sing for a little bit. I'm, I'm a musician, but if some of you have been in a black church, you remember they would all start in the devotional. They go, and then the leader would come in, God, mule, thou great Jehovah, pilgrim through this barren land, God. And the, and the people are moaning up underneath. And I'm reminded of Romans 8, you know, where it says the Spirit gives us um, uh, the ability to speak to God in moans that are inexpressible. And, and so I always got this feeling that a black theology of disability, here were the older people. Some of them were in wheelchairs. Some of them had bad arthritis. Some of them couldn't see very well. But they passed on those songs to me. And I want to pass on those songs to my children and have, in fact, done it as a way of remembering that the slaves sang. And when you sing those songs, I tell you, when you hear them, when you hear the whole congregation singing, it literally takes you back to their suffering. And it takes you back to not only their suffering, but the midst of the hope that they had that that kind of suffering would end for the folks that came later. They didn't know when it would end, but they knew that it would come to an end. So I'm, I'm encouraged by that, and I wanted to share that with you very much. Um, we can't forget where we have come from. Uh, remembering is like, it's not just um, um, a psychological nicety, but remembering actually uh, should be woven into the part of a disability uh, theology. Uh, because, you know, Martin Luther King gave a wonderful, wonderful sermon on the fact that God, if he is, if God is anything, God is able. And by able, um, God, he meant God has the capacity and the power to change all things. Well, any disabled person knows that that particular scripture has been used in lethal ways to our spirits. People have said, well, God is able to change you. God is able to fix you. You know, and then if we didn't get fixed, we were made to feel pretty bad about our faith. We did something wrong. We only had more faith. But somehow, um, and Brother Kendrick, I, I would like for you to address this too, especially. How can we maintain the able God with the with Isolin's wonderful contribution to theological circles, which says, in fact, that God's ability is not the importance. God's love and presence with us through all things is most important. Thank, thank you. 
for me, it's deepened my commitment for justice. It became urgent because um, black disabled bodies are marginalized by race, disability, class, and gender. Mm-hmm. I have to step back and analyze the healing stories because a lot of them are tied up with sin. Mm-hmm. I used to go to the church and people used to lay their hands on me and said, you gonna get well because you had two strokes. So I need, I need to reinterpret the healing stories because it didn't work for me. So I do. And I know Jesus came to really heal the community, not the individual. He really came to heal the community for everybody in the community. Kendrick and I are on the same wavelength because as a theologian, I would say that we really need to think about what salvation means. Um, And I think of salvation as the root salve, right? Wholeness and health, um, which ties so closely to what, to the healing narratives, right? That are in, in, um, at least in in Christian traditions and in New Testament texts. Um, And that the, uh, what it means to be whole, that's I guess my favorite one, because Jesus says, do you want to be well? Do you want to be whole? We say things like perfect. Um, we say things like fixed. But that's not, and we're the New Testament people. Um, I don't know the Greek. I'm a philosophical theologian. But none of the interpretations I read say perfect or fixed. They read whole. They read, um, do you want to be well? And that whole and well is the state of our our souls for many of us right it's um you know not about you know in mental health challenges we say it's not about cure right it's um you can't fix me because i'm not broken (laughs) right Mm -hmm. but it's how do we live right um how do we understand ourselves are we you know are we able to do some you know many what are we able to do and are we able to do them with integrity those things we are able to do um, and so having these very different definitions, right, of what wholeness means, of what health means, of what it means to be well, of what it means to be strong. And yes, these are things that God desires for us and things that Jesus, for those of us who are in Christian traditions, helps to facilitate. But that's not perfect, right? I and mean, what is perfect? Who's perfect? That's not normal, right? I mean, getting those kinds of terms out of our theological vocabulary, right? And that... Um, I don't do theological anthropology as well as Dr. Lightsey. Um, But we think about what does it mean to be created, right? And what does it mean when God says this is how you're created and God keeps creating and all that creation is good, right? There are Hebrew Bible people here. That's that's right, right? Yeah, it's good, Um, right? Um, And if I remember correctly, it's not a moral statement. It's a functional statement, right? Mm. That, you know, I am pleased it works, like, we're okay now, um, not with the heft that ethicists often bring to goodness. 
Um, and that if we're, however we are, we're great to God, well, that's a good starting point. But that's a very different starting point than total depravity. It's a different starting point than original sin. That's a different starting point than, you know, a rib in Adam, right? So where are we beginning our creation theologies? Where are we beginning our theological anthropologies? And I think if we take seriously our embodiment, we, we, we have to push these even more so, I think, in black religious communities because our embodiments are the places where we are least safe where we're most vulnerable in the world. And so we can't just swallow wholesale theologies from people who don't have those experiences necessarily. Monica, I just want to step in right quick. When I, when I was not able to move past the active lupus stage of my lupus uh, developments, I would get sick for two weeks, be hospitalized. Then I'd be out for three months, three months, and then I'd get sick again and be in the hospital for three weeks. And it was like a cycle all through. Then I have to admit to you that my, I saw my body as an enemy. I, I hated my body. I, my body was always restraining and getting sick. And my spirit was strong and willing and able, but my body could never be counted on. And this affected the way that people would treat me. Uh, they didn't ask me to go to certain places with them. I missed a great uh, choir trip from Boston to Puerto Rico. And my, my uh, conductor said, well, you know, Garth, you, you just might get sick and we can't risk it. And so, I mean, I remember hating my body until somehow, uh, and this is what I call grace. There was grace that was placed in my heart. And I learned to accept my body. And when I did, miraculous things began to happen. I want to maybe problematize this a bit because I think that part of accepting black dis disabled bodies uh, is part of the history of chattel slavery. So I want to problematize mm. that a little bit because um, chattel slavery, the inter—I mean, the project of slavery, looked for uh, the workable uh, black body in America. Okay, a body that was strong, a body that was capable, a body that was that was, uh, as we say, able-bodied. Okay, and so I've been I've been thinking as we've been sitting here, I think it's worth investigating uh, the history of black bodies, black bodies, um, are during chattel slavery. What happened to black bodies that could no longer work the field? Okay, what happened to black bodies that could no longer think in ways to, to enact and to carry forth the orders? I, I suspect that many of the beatings that some of our ancestors received was, was not because they were disobeying, but because their bodies would not, could not respond to chattel slavery. And I think that's, that's worth acknowledging right now and investigating also. And that, that, that hurts me. And I, I also want to say that I don't want to leave it to chattel slavery because there's this internalized oppression of black people carries forward 
when it comes to black to di black disabled bodies, whether we're talking about mental or we're talking about physical, because internalized oppression is so deep in the black community, and 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 I think we can tie this in with respectability politics if we if we if we think long and hard enough, because there is a way in which the black community under the yoke of oppression, centuries of oppressions, still yeah. articulates itself as, okay, you know, we're, 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 we can assimilate, we're okay, we're at least not that bad, okay? And so we, we look at black bodies that don't respond um, when we look at disabilities, then I do think that there is a sensibility within black communities, you all correct me here, that does look at um, um, disability as a, a kind of a front to black progress, mm -hmm. black ability to assimilate in white America. That's powerful. So the panelists have raised issues about biblical theology, salvation, creation theologies, uh, the liturgical gymnastics required of black church, um, the importance of song and of being able to talk about um, God's ability as well as God's love and the issues of chattel slavery regarding the black body and its commercial use. Our next question is on where do people who are black and disabled fit into our historic and contemporary protest movements? So where do people who are both black and disabled fit within historic and contemporary protest movements? Well, I don't mind starting here because I can talk about one of my favorite figures and our sisters and brothers. I know that you'll know who I'm about to speak about because they've even named a kind of dollar monetary thing about her. Her name was Harriet Tubman. Many people don't know that in one of her rescue missions, she was hit extremely hard on the head by a shovel. And this disabled her in the sense that sometimes she was unable to think as clearly as she had before. Sometimes she would um, get lost and um, she wouldn't lead the slaves astray. She knew that if she made a mistake, uh, things could be bad, but she would just have to delay because she had brain damage. And so she was essentially a disabled woman. And yet she was a woman of liberation and freedom. I think this is a tricky question. I went to Ferguson in 2014 after the death of my brother Michael Brown with three more students from Union Theological Seminary. We went down to witness and provide care to the folks there. I had the opportunity to talk with the brothers and sisters and listen to their pain and grief. 
oftentimes I just sat there and been, been present. I was really there for the people on the, on the ground. And I realized that a lot of people was experiencing trauma. Trauma plays out in a lot of different ways. We know all traumas or most traumas and mental health disabilities go hand in hand. Mm-hmm. Yes. Sometimes location of protests are are not welcome for people who have disabilities. So I had to think about protesting. Is the protest is about marching or more than marching? I know Black Lives Matter movement is deeply invested in honoring all black lives in all kind of ways. They provide organizing strategies that are vast and allow space for everybody to take part. Black Lives Matter is a fact, example of black liberation theology of disabilities in action. Black lives living with disabilities matter. Thank you. So Durham, thank you for talking about Ferguson. Um, as, as some of you will know, I spent, I, I've been particularly involved in Black Lives Matter movement. During my, day, my, my days, during the first 21 days um, of protests in Ferguson, I was down in Ferguson. And I was brought to tears, actually, uh, because one of the teenagers who walked uh, for hours each night up and down West Florissant Avenue walked and played drums and led the cadence, uh, had a prosthesis. And each night uh, as I walked uh, near him or behind him or alongside him, I kept thinking to myself, this is, this guy really, uh, his example touches me. Uh, and you know, just my limited, I mean, very, very limited. I was being very limited in my thought. I said, well, if he can do this, everybody should be down here on these streets. You know, everybody should be down here on the streets. Of course, it's not quite correct, but that's the passion that I had for the moment. And persons in wheelchairs were being, you know, uh, were, were going up and down uh, West Florissant in front of the police department, there's one young woman uh, by the name of Heather. She live streamed from her wheelchair uh, each night in Ferguson. So I know that there, that persons with disabilities were and are present in the movement. Persons who have, uh, who are deaf uh, are also in the movement. Uh, I also am thinking about not only our participation the participation of all persons in the movement, but the danger of being black in America with a hearing disability, 
uh, or um, uh, uh, a mental health disability, okay? We know that some black people have been killed by police because the police did not, did not handle, did not handle the situation working with a person with a mental health disability well. We know that. Uh, and so I think uh, that the protest, that one of the things that we protesters um, will certainly give more attention to, need to give more attention to, and America needs to give more attention to, and that is the status of persons with uh, mental health disabilities and hearing disabilities and how police respond to calls related to them. We, we need to do a better job there. And I just have to piggyback on that. And so we get into um, uh, my brothers and sisters, the, probably the most incredibly important aspect of a black theology of liberation. And that is that we must deal with the mass incarceration of both our men and more and more recently, our women. Um, so, so when we start talking about a person who is disabled, and then we immediately go to the fact that the police person could then um, uh, uh, arrest them, and then they would be put into a place that would increase and magnify their mental illness enormously. Because Angela Davis, in her new book, A Constant Struggle for Freedom, she says the three largest institution, mental institutions are also jails. Yeah. Uh, in Rikers Island, uh, in Cook County Jail, they're having, they're, they have mentally uh, handicapped persons, mentally challenged persons, rather. Sorry about that. And these persons are not getting the kind of aid that they need. So once we get into the talk about uh, about police not knowing how to about how to handle a person who has a challenge, uh, or especially a mental challenge, uh, we then immediately get into that enormously difficult morass of the privatization of the industrial conflict. We get into that enormous uh, set of issues, and that's that's very important for us to deal with. Um, there was a man recently who, um, he was a little bit strangely, he was acting strangely, he had a screwdriver in his hand, and uh, when the mother came out with him behind them, the, the police immediately focused on the screwdriver as a weapon. When he did not drop the screwdriver, he was gunned down. And the justification was that he had a weapon in his hand. So again, this young man had a mental problem. I believe that the mother even said that he was mentally ill at the police, and they still did not respond except with violence. Well, I, 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 you, know, you brought me to this. I didn't want to say this. I personally, I lost someone. Thank you. I lost the parishioner who suffered from schizophrenia. Mm -hmm. um, he was arrested, and he was in, in he was in jail beating on the, the jail cell, asking for his medication. His mother was a psych, is a psychologist, a friend of mine. He was beating on the jail cell walls for his medication. The police rushed in, jumped him, and uh, as a result of being jumped, I mean, they just jumped, piled on top of him, and he's, they suffocated him to death. Mm. And so I don't have a lot of tolerance for, for uh, policing, <laughs> 
uh, that is, is not willing to equip itself and learn about um, mental health disabilities. I, I don't have the, a lot of tolerance for it because I lost a dear child because, as a result of that. I'm so sorry. So our panelists raised issues regarding historic and contemporary movements. Speaking of Harriet Tubman, uh, experiences in Ferguson of being inclusive of black persons with disabilities who are also part of the movement and raised issues regarding police brutality and mass incarceration. So our last question for the panelists before we open it up to a conversation with the audience, how can our black theologies support black persons with disabilities? whether they are living with mental health challenges, developmental disabilities, learning differences, or brain injuries? I would like for someone um, like Monica or Kendrick to speak. I, I'd just like to see where the conversation would go, if you don't mind. Yeah. Um, I'm thinking of this twofold. I guess both in terms of what our black theologies can do and then what our black religious worshiping and institutional spaces can do. And those feel like two different questions to me. Um, and so, you know, I think with our theologies, it's, um, and this is, you know, some of the, some of what was lost in, in the vast embrace of Protestantism in the word, um, and this focus on rationalities and written texts, um, is that we've lost the, the affirmation, even theologically speaking, of the non-rational parts of what it, of faith, right? Of the parts of faith that do not require us to think in sequential order, <laughs> right? Um, because this is what we do and how we make our livings <laughs> for those of us who are in the academy um, and the discourses that we enter in, you know, these, you know, medieval definitions of theology, of faith meeting reason, and all this kind of stuff, but that there are parts of belief that are faith claims. Um, some I don't like the word mystery because I'm a metaphysical, philosophical theologian, so mystery doesn't excite me. But it, mystery works for many people, um, right? But there, there are parts of what of our belief systems that are that are not rational, right? And to be able to affirm those parts, and that there are. Um, so that's one thing I would say theologically, is to be able to live in those spaces as well with our theologies that are okay with um, not always doing things. I'm a constructive theologian who doesn't feel the need to be systematic all the time too, right? The, the pieces don't have to fit perfectly um, all the time because of how we live and experience things. Um, the other part, I'm looking at my notes here, <laughs> is, um, You know, I think theologically what I keep coming back to is, you know, I love the way Matthew Fox said it eons ago, right, about original blessedness, right, in that, that we are blessed and good and created and whole as we are. And what an important and key affirmation that really must be. So when I, I talked about the word irrationality, that, there's, that there are these ways, these epistemological ways of knowing God outside of reason, right? Some of us know God with our senses, other senses, right? I think of traditions where smells are important, where water is important, right? Where sacraments um, that are embodied in all types of ways become key ways of knowing God as much as 
um, a sermon or a message or a lesson, right? That there are these ways of knowing and experiencing God that come outside of, of rational thoughts, right? And so that's important for everyone, <laughs> but it becomes something even more salient for those um, who are living with, partic- with brain conditions, we'll say, or, or brain challenges, or where your brain's not always doing what you might like it to do. Um, when it comes to the actual practices, which I think is a different question but related, of spaces, um, you know, in some ways it's a key part, I think, of at least I'll say faith traditions I know well, um, even though so hard to put into practice. And that is this radical idea that everybody is a full human being loved by the divine in the community. I mean, it sounds really good, but people don't really do it. Um, and it becomes this, you know, that we are all, like all, all, all of us um, beloved, right, and, and whole as we are, and that the treatment of dignity is, you know, I mean, to me, that's what makes the worship space a good space, where that no matter how you come in, you walk out with dignity, right, and what it means to be able to maintain and sometimes restore the dignity of those who are there in a wider world that does not treat everybody, <laughs> with dignity. I mean, I, I think of what you were saying, Kendrick, earlier about how they didn't treat you well. People were afraid of you. They didn't know what to do, right? What? Like, that's not supposed to happen, right? Um, you're, you, you know, you're always, we're always supposed to be embraced and loved and held, right? Um, and that, that becomes to me even more so important because when you have a condition that doesn't, that's not obviously visible, Right, that you can't see, that you might not know is there. So that means this is every, you have to do it to everybody because you never know. <laughs> right? So that, I guess those are my preliminary thoughts. Well, I, you know, let me piggyback on that. Uh, and I like the way you started me in that direction, um, Sister uh, Dr. Coleman. Um, I think that a theological issue that we must put into the front is the issue of violence. Uh, that issue has to do with what we would call as theologians, the theological anthropology. So when we start with violence, then we can look at the violence of both um, police assaults, but the violence of our children killing one another, and why this is happening, and uh, what we can do about it, not only sociologically, but in our churches, in our theologies. How do we deal with the violence that's on the streets? And... Uh, uh, one last thing to that point, then, is that, you know, people talk about the mental illness that's um, rampant in the African-American community, in particular, uh, those young people that have been traumatized by too much murder too much of the time. Um, and and I, was, I was challenged the other day by my pastor, who uh, has read some of my books on theology, and he said, he said, well, what would be your alternative? And I went home and I prayed and I thought of this. We need to start working on an agenda of mental wellness, mm-hmm. not mental illness. And the first place that I started, interestingly enough, was in the criminalization of a community. Why are we set off as being criminals and as criminals then we can be treated not as citizens, not as uh, beloved children of God, but rather as people that need to be put away, locked up, and watched with great um, 
with 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 the violence that is in and of itself um, bringing more and more violence to the community. Now, as a person who is so-called crippled, one of the more radical words that we use about being well, handicapped is that we're crips. And so people were trying to find out the etymology of the word. And interestingly enough, it, uh, it, it appeared the same time that the gang called the Crips were coming in and out of jail. And because they had been, uh, you know, wounded in, in ways that paralyzed them, uh, they were crippled. And they called themselves Crips. So we have this, you know, this overlap of being radical disabled people with radically disabled bodies on the one hand, and then we get the person who comes, who becomes radically disabled because of the violence that has been used on his body and that he himself has participated in. So I won't talk, I will say just a little bit about theology because I'm particularly interested and the doctrines of Imago Dei, doctrines of creation. I treat mm -hmm. those doctrines in my constructive theology as I'm talking about uh, LGBTQ, uh, liberal, uh, queer womanist theology. I do think that we need to go back and investigate those doctrines for the efficaciousness um, um, for the lives of persons who are dealing with uh, mental health uh, disabilities uh, hearing disabilities, physical disabilities. I think they really need to be investigated. I also think that while we're investigating them, we ought to hold them in tension with what I feel uh, exists in black churches, and that is a kind of hierarchy of bodies, kind of hierarchy of bodies, such that uh, particular bodies are esteemed uh, over and against other bodies. Uh, so one starts with the body of the, of the clergy person, who really has more than a body in the life of the black church. The body of the, of the minister, the body of the pastor, is a, is a sort of God in the life of the black church. Uh, this person is esteemed above others, can do no harm, uh, and is the voice and almost embodiment of God. Uh, and uh, from, that, from that starting point to really investigate how we look at bodies in black churches to include, uh, you know, all the bodies down to, uh, or see, down to, down to, uh, to include the bodies of our children uh, and the bodies of our children who also are, 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 are bodies are carrying uh, mental health disabilities and physical disabilities as well. So we need to, I think we need to investigate that and do a very thorough investigation. I think while we're looking at black theologies, I think we ought to look, we, we can think of even about the word black theology of liberation because of the connotation of movement that the, the phrase liberation uh, brings to mind. So I think that's, that's worth investigating. And then finally, I think it's worth investigating uh, black church liturgy, which I alluded to at the beginning of my conversation here. I think we need to look at the liturgies in the black church that are not always healthy. Uh, certainly not always, have not always been, have not been healthy for my son, who is reticent to go back to church because of some of the, uh, because the liturgy itself is not, is not always helpful for him safe, then I will just use an example, to arrive in church, to sit in church, and to hear 
uh, a song uh, that is that is well embraced in black church spaces and it's we are soldiers in the army of the Lord you know mm-hmm. um, those kind of, uh, of deep um, um, uh, you know in, in some sense patriotic but patriotic to God divine patriot uh, patriotism are problematic for for soldiers who've been in war zones hmm. I'm going to talk about this in a social work lens. And I have a space for people who are living in a, with a mental health challenge and all of the um, disabilities is very important. However, gaining trust and finding the right professional to lead the, this work is very difficult and always, always consuming. It's important to gain rapport. This important work for the church can take on. I hosted a brain conference a couple of years ago. I invited a lot of local churches and community centers in nursing homes and people living with brain injuries. And I invited a lot of black organizations and black churches. And it was there, it was about 150 people attended. However, there was only three black people there. This, to me, it was very telling the work important this 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 important work to I, I need to do in my community around these issues. I have found we don't talk about mental health issues like we should, but it's more today. This is an urgent call to get more active in spaces and for people with living with disabilities. Um, I wanted to come back and talk about, I guess, one final thing, and that is that for many um, people of color, and I think it's true for black folk, um, the black church is the first and major source of advocacy in most issues, whatever the issue might be. You know, as a clergy, you're like, oh, you come to me with this, right? Whether it's I can't pay my mortgage to um, a vast variety of challenges. And I, I think right now, I guess I'm thinking in particular about learning differences and where and how... Um, our faith communities um, can be advocates for those who have learning differences. And that means, I mean, I'm thinking of everything from, um, there are, there's really kind of one way of learning that is affirmed in educational processes. And your ability to learn in that way or fake it <laughs> largely determines your level of success, whether you're in kindergarten or in a PhD program. And 
those who learn differently, which is most people actually, <laughs> don't learn in the way that it's affirmed in, in kind of Western educational systems, end up being marginalized. And so I think there is something, maybe I'll get to the allergy part as I keep talking, right, to be said about what it means to advocate, because this starts really young. Right, for those who are labeled ADHD, when sometimes their problems are actually fear, trauma, and hunger. Um, and Ritalin doesn't solve it, but love and safety do. Right, mm. and I'm thinking of these studies that show how kids who are labeled as ADHD actually, once they were foster kids, but once they were actually put in the homes of safety and security, all their symptoms went away because they didn't have a chemical imbalance, they were terrified. Oh, right, and then once you solve the problem of fear, um, all these other things changed. And so giving these more holistic looks or that uh, at things or um, penalizing kids who can't sit still because they're kinetic learners. And a lot of people of color are kinetic learners. A lot of people of color are contextual learners. And so a test um, or the ability to sit still doesn't measure what you know. Um, and this is what our educational systems do. And then we reaffirm those in our Sunday school programs. We do the same things to kids. Um, and, you know, it goes on and on and on, right? And so I think that there are ways that, you know, we have to affirm that there are multiple ways to learn, right? And that many people and many people of color, many black people don't learn um, because we're, we, we're really deeply contextual learners. And I say this from my experiences. My mom was the one who was able to teach all the little black boys who ended up in seventh grade and couldn't read. And it wasn't that they weren't smart, but no, they, teachers knew one way to teach. And she knew how to teach black boys. And there were different ways of teaching. And within six months, these kids who made it through seven years of education and couldn't read, could read, right? Because one, she cared. Um, but two, she also realized like, hey, we have to do different things with different people. And so I feel like there are ways that we can be advocates and we have to have these theologies that are actually able to live with multiplicity, that are able to live with the multiple, that are able to affirm that there's not just one way to believe, there's not just one way to worship, there's not just one way to approach our faith, but there are multiple ways and they are equally valid. And when we can do that in our faith lives and we can do that in our communal lives. I agree wholeheartedly, Monica. <laughs> I, I just agree wholeheartedly. And you know, um, I'm learning from my black feminist and womanist colleagues something they've known about. Um, I read about Kimberly Crenshaw using the word about intersectional or intersectionality and the fact that um, once one applies the intersectional uh, analytical tool, then one gets a good idea of the fact that race and class and gender and sexuality overlap uh, sometimes complicating one another, sometimes reinforcing the violence that um, um, these uh, the, these persons um, experience in life. And so it is that complex analysis, as well as people um, writing theology with this intersectional um, um, an analytical tool in mind, that I think that we can begin to at least make uh, some steps in that direction. And, you know, um, my colleagues, I have this feeling that maybe we just simply need to do it as groups. Maybe it's just too thick and too hard 
to, to deal with race, sex, class, gender, da, 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 all these different issues, you know, militarism, nationalism, xenophobia. Uh, I mean, it, it all comes in together and we see the intersections, but maybe we're not individually able to handle all of those issues all of the time. So maybe we need to begin to think about our own theological um, uh, work that we need to work as a community, uh, that our community, instead of us making um, monographs that become famous, and Monica Coleman is famous for this, and Kendrick Kemp is uh, famous for that, and Garth Baker Fletcher is famous for that, but rather that um, um, we have all gotten together and brought all of our concerns um, and brought our theological, our ethical, our moral, our social our, uh, values to the task of theological creation and construction. So our panelists have raised a number of issues regarding black theologies, black religious institutions, uh, historical questions regarding hierarchies of bodies, and differences in learning. So now we'd like to open up the floor to the audience uh, for brief questions or comments as far as joining the conversation regarding, again, the theme of black liberation theologies of disability. Okay, so, so the question to the panel is, how is the black church reaching or reaching out to the larger community, uh, especially people who may not be part of the church itself? Well, I talked about the south side of Chicago. Uh, that was my last parish ministry was south side of Chicago. Prior to that, I uh, actually did a wonderful research project when I was an MDev student in Atlanta where I actually went on the streets and filmed, did a documentary um, with the thing, The Beggar, and it was for an ethics class. And what I found out is that many of the people who were living on the streets homeless were military veterans. And some of the military veterans um, wanted to be there because they insisted on their own freedoms, uh, having the ability to live life on their own terms. And that is an, a matter of agency that I fully respect. On the other hand, while in Chicago, one of the things I recognized was the chipping away of state funds to deal with uh, um, mental health disabilities. And I dare say that that chipping away of state funds in the Chicago area is not unique. I think that happens across the country. And so since the black church has always seen itself involved in the politics of the community, um, you know, I work with our aldermans, and I know other uh, black clergy work with aldermans and, and uh, politicians in the area and express their concern about the chipping away of resources to help not only persons who were homeless, who may have mental health uh, disabilities, but persons within our churches. Uh, and and some of those persons who turn to drugs to treat, to do self, 
to self-treat and some of some medication and some of those persons are actually clergy persons there's a there was a study done in the united methodist church that showed the high use the high use of medication self-medication by clergy to deal with issues of oppression so i think your question really begs that begs us to take a look on the inside Okay, as well as working with the politics in our in our local communities, we can do a lot more, and we should. Mm -hmm. Other panelists? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yes, in the front, the bow tie. So the question was, how might black liberations of theology, how might black liberation theologies of disability address issues of trauma in communities and also the wounded healer for those who are in leadership and serving in those communities? I know for me, I have a personal therapist um, and I, I need that to ground me to go out. If I didn't have that, I couldn't do my work. You know, um, and there's pastoral care. So you can have that. I think that's a very, very important instrument we can use to do our work. You know, for uh, I've had the the honor really of going around the country the last several months talking about mental health challenges in faith communities, and um, at the same time that for last several years and increasingly, it always seems over the summer it gets worse, right? That that unarmed um, black men and women and trans persons are killed by police, and so I'm going into communities that are experiencing these great kinds of grief and trauma and anger um, and injustice. And I wanted to echo really what both Pamela and Kendrick are saying, and that is um, to the affirmation of therapy for religious and um, activist leaders, right? Um, that, I mean, I, and I say that jokingly, every black person over 10 could probably benefit from a therapist because we're in a world that doesn't care or value our lives, right? <laughs> um, like that alone, it, it affects you, it changes you. I mean, people have this, I mean, I, there are seven-year-olds hearing, now that Trump is president, we're gonna kill all the black people. This is being said in schools in LA, in California is blue, right? <laughs> it's a really, really blue state. Um, I mean, so, yeah, anybody, you know, it, this is not, I mean, this, like, there, the way that we experience trauma and oppression shapes us as children, let alone if you're two feet in actively. And so I think removing the stigma that everybody in helping professions needs therapy, right, especially those in black protest movements. 
Um, and there are, I have a colleague in Indianapolis who gathers the black psychologists to offer reduced rates to people in helping professions, you know, and people who own retreat centers to offer reduced rates and special weekends for everyone to unplug once a quarter for 25 bucks, <laughs> which most people can pull together, right, um, for a weekend retreat, right? So, you know, that we can mobilize the forces of healing that we do have and unrest that we do have, but that also means we have to get over the stigma. Right, and be able to say, like, for me to help you, I have to be okay. Right? And that's not that I'm broken, it's that I'm human. Nobody would be okay. Right? Um, living with and enduring and resisting the kinds of things that we're, we're dealing with and that we've always dealt I mean, it's not like it got, this is new. Right, that we've always dealt with, but we actually are beginning to have more resources and culturally competent resources and religiously sensitive, not great, but they're better, um, resources, <laughs> right, to, to manage these things. And there are people who do therapy online, and so you can, you know, maybe you got to go, maybe you're not going to find it in your small town, right? But to, to there, you know, and so part of our challenge then is being able to figure out how to make these more available, how to make, how to make these more known, how to um, have people who are able to bill insurance companies at $250 an hour so that they can break off like a $50 an hour fee for other people, right? And who are these people and where can we find them and how do we access them? Um, but I think those are really big ways. Can I piggyback? Um, I know personally um, in the 60s, there was a book called Black Rage. And um, Dr. Greer and Dr. Cobbs were talking about this um, cultural amnesia. I think, I think black people have a healthy paranoia. I know I have a healthy paranoia until you prove wrong, you know? And I, I, I know that. So um, when I do my work, I first go inside and make sure I'm right. You know, and then I can go out. I think also this invites us to a humble position. And by that I mean uh, that within our fields, within our particular fields, we see our, we're, we're called experts in particular fields. But working with trauma on the levels at, at which we, we, we've been looking at in our nation really ought to, at least it has for me, move us to collaborate across disciplines, okay? Because the, the discipline of theology, the discipline of ethics uh, can be helped by working with persons in uh, the other fields such as psychology, psychiatry, pastoral theology, pastoral care, those fields can be very helpful when, when, we're, when we're trying to engage and work within communities and also to work with pastors. So, on the, so on, the, on the first level, pastors have to be humble enough to recognize that they don't have all the skills necessary, okay, to deal with trauma and to deal with some of the things that are happening on the streets, in the lives of black people. That means you are not God. You know, you do not have every answer. And it's, it, is right, it is right and just for you to refer your parishioners and other persons to persons who have the skills that can be helpful. That's the, that's the first layer. The second layer, and I noticed this my, um, 
uh, the Orlando, the tragedy in Orlando. I have a niece who lost a friend. My niece lives in Orlando. She called me up, um, a, a young queer woman, called me up and said, Auntie, I need you to come. And so I, 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 before I got on the plane to go to Orlando, I contacted a friend who does um, psychotherapy, and I said, you know, I can't do this by myself. Would you come with me to help, uh, to, to, to give some, some help to this community? Now, on the national news, there were all kinds of reports about places in Orlando where people could get help. But within black communities, persons weren't going to those, to those sites. Mm -hmm. And so um, caregivers really had to be very intentional and go to within black communities to offer care. Mm -hmm. And we situated ourselves in a black LGBTQ church in Orlando. And I found that to be not only, um, certainly they, they appreciated it. My colleague did wonderful counseling, uh, and they appreciated that. But I learned a lot from that experience. Yeah. And it, it, it has enforced my resolve to, to be collaborative in my work as a theologian. Uh, I need to piggyback on um, both of the two last statements because they are so wonderful and because they are so thorough. Uh, one of the things, as I browse through the new literature that is coming out, is that uh, white persons are beginning to look very intentionally in the age of Trump at white rage. And one of the things that they recognized, that Derrick Bell recognized a long time ago at Faces at the Bottom of the Well, is this phenomenon that every time there is some... Uh, some uh, progress in racial um, in, in race relations in America. So we made progress. We, we voted, everybody voted for Obama. Uh, that then there is a built-up reaction of, that continues to build among whites until finally it explodes into rage, which, of course, we are seeing now. And so he, re he uh, wrote this book in the 80s, and he said he talked about what he called the permanence of racism. And he got a lot of flack for doing that, for saying that. But um, certainly people that are disabled are going to experience that white rage in a very frightening way. Um, uh, I remember before Trump's uh, election that a, a wide variety of people would sometimes um, open the door for me or hold it for me. And I thought it was wonderful and I'd always give them a blessing and thank them. I even sometimes prayed with them if they looked like they were down. But now when I go up to a door and I can't reach it, uh, there will be white people that will see me and go around to it, another door rather than help me. Uh, that's, that's a sign of that white rage coming out. Why should we help black people? Why should we even treat them as human beings that are worthy of dignity and respect? So I, I would like to see this as we become more sophisticated in our analysis. We need to talk about racism cycles and how the violence of those cycles uh, violates our, our dignity and puts us in jeopardy of intersectional uh, violence. So thank you. Thank you. 
There was a question in one, two, three, third row. So the question was about theological anthropology and is there a way that the church can construct a different vision um, about bodies and about um, issues of normativity? Well, again, I would, I would just quickly say this. Uh, as I told you, I hated my body until I came to realization that I needed to embrace it, that God had created my body just as it was. Second uh, Corinthians 12, where poor little Paul got thorn in his flesh. He asked God to take it away three times. And what does God say? Um, no, I'm not going to do that. My grace is uh, sufficient in this very weakness that you have. So um, that says a lot to me. I get, I get very transformed when I think about the implications of that for disabled bodies, um, and especially disabled black bodies in a white supremacist society. Um, we, instead of looking at ourselves as weak and unable and disabled in our endeavors, um, theologically we see ourselves as blessed by a grace that only our weakness could make uh, visible and real and revelational uh, to those that do not have disabled bodies. So the short answer to your question is yes. Okay, the long answer, the longer answer to your question is, is to unpack what we mean by the church. Okay, so if we're thinking about the church universal, um, then we need to get down to the level of the human being on a local level. Can it be done? Yes, it can if the hierarchy of the church works in concert with making it done. We have enough biblical resources. We have enough resources in the text to affirm uh, the vision that you put before us and to move us in that way. Will we do that? Will that get done? Okay, the pragmatic side of Lightsey having lived these, lulled these many years, <laughs> says not likely. I, I, and, and I say that because I, you know, I, I've lived long enough to look at you know, the way uh, hubris, uh, pride, uh, and the way we uh, construct our lives such that someone is always subordinate to the other. So this is a matter, for me, of power and control. And as long as we attend to power and control and the subordination of another, of another even within the, the, the perceived holy walls of ecclesia, that won't happen. Yes, in the back, second row from the back. So there were two questions. One is about uh, naming identification and questions of uh, people first identification. And then the second question was about biblical texts and how they are used when we're talking about issues of healing. the moderator. <laughs> That's yours, Monica. I'll say briefly, issues of naming are always politicized. Gosh, darn it. And so I think it's best to ask people what naming they like. Um, whether it's um, 
around gender, around um, around race, around academic identity, around um, ability. Just ask who you're dealing with. Um, and publishers may have preferences, so you ask the publisher, right? And if you feel strongly, you assert your perspective. Um, I mean, that's what I would say, because I mean, I, I can't think of any population where you might find someone who says, you can say Indian, no, you have to say Native American. You can say queer, no, you can't say queer. Right? I mean, like, right, these are deep, they're deeply politicized, and they're deeply personal, and everyone feels differently about it. Um, so I would say that one, definitionally, there, there isn't one right way. Some people feel okay, comfortable as disabled persons. Some people say no, persons with disabilities. And I don't think there's a right or right. wrong there. Um, that's my doesn't help you much answer, but I think the, the best answer I think I could, I could give on that level. Do there more who want oh, to comment on that? Thank you, Monica. Let me, let me piggyback if you don't mind. I'll just piggyback for a second. Um, you know that politically, uh, those blue signs with the wheelchair are what? Handicapped. And at that moment in time where that particular symbol came up, that was a naming that was perfectly acceptable. Now in the disability studies community, that word is not only not used, but it's in a certain way vilified. Uh, the same way that black people vilified the word uh, Negro. And you know, you don't call a black person a Negro because that's not uh, the way that black people have named themselves. Uh, so, so I agree with you, Monica. It's just, it is a matter of, in a sense, being very um, flexible and listening to people. What are they calling themselves? What are they calling the issues that they're going through? I know for me personally, I call I'm I'm my name's Kendrick and I'm I'm living with a disability. But like like Monica said, um, I think it's very impersonal. So if I ask somebody what they want to be called, you know. I'm really giving them space, you know, and um, to, to call themselves what they want. You know, sometimes we're in a world that we have power and we don't even really realize it, you know. And, uh, you know, it's a, um, so when I step back and just let people, you know, have um, space, to um, call or um, identify who they want to be, that's, that's, t that's really agency. Mm -hmm. Anthony, to your, to your question about the text, um, I think that people are heavily invested in um, particularly in the black church, in black churches. I think people are, and I'm painting with a broad brush, so of course there are exceptions here, but I think that people are heavily invested in a particular interpretation of the text uh, uh, that, that renders uh, any kind of imperfection other than the imperfection that Jesus, uh, that, that Jesus does not confront and resolve as problematic. So uh, 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 an interpretation of the text that deals with, that looks at persons who have physical uh, disabilities 
our mental, uh, our mental disabilities requires a healing savior, okay? And that requirement for a healing savior uh, carries over into our day-to-day life and in the life of the church where it's very important that we lay hands on that person, that we slather oil even on them, you know, and we, we cast out that demon that has caused that sickness, that has caused that disability, that has caused that imperfection. And I'm, I'm in, in quote, in scare marks. And when that doesn't happen as we envision it should happen, the problem is not with the text because, of course, the text is infallible. Okay, so we 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 lay upon that person the extra burden of not being perfect enough to live up to the healing that Jesus has offered them. Something wrong with you? I lay all this oil, all this hand laying on. You didn't receive it. You didn't believe it. You didn't claim it. You see, and so we're 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 still struggling with um, our interpretation of the text, which I, you know, as a theologian, I work really hard against um, uh, uh, the literal interpretation of the text and how that, how that way of viewing the text has so stigmated the black, black churches, how it has really hurt us in so many ways that we have yet to uh, just kind of Peel back the layers on. So I hope that that kind of helps. Ditto to everything Hamlet says. And I wanted to add, um, and partly this is my research, and I, I, I live in the land of prosperity theology, right? I mean, this is normative in Los Angeles. And I live in the land of black new thought religions. And they're not looking at the same text, but they come out with the same theologies, right? Whether you're coming from Christian science, religious science, um, other, you know, various denominations within New Thoughts, and um, all types of mainline Protestants that embrace prosperity theologies, um, which is not necessarily tied to a text, but affirms that there is, this con- there is a direct correlation between faith and physical wellness, Right, um, and for those in new thought communities, that it is a power of thought and intention that shapes both of these. Um, for all the things I value about new thought communities, this is just a problematic theological proposition, <laughs> right? At base, so taking aside any healing narrative, when you're supported by these undergirded, well, in case my hands, undergirded and upheld by these kinds of theological ideas, which are foundational. To these, to these theological worlds, right? I mean, this is really what the, the bottom of what prosperity theology is saying, the core of what many new thought theologies and metaphysics are saying. Um, and it does not hold for most people, actually. <laughs> um, it just becomes more amplified and more damning, right, for those who live in conditions and bodies, again, no one re- really worked this way, right? Um, where it, that, that, that it doesn't, healing doesn't work like that. And so, so much um, more of it, and one thing I can appreciate about some ways in which Ifa is practiced is the goal is um, Iwa Pele, which is good character. <laughs> like that's always the discussion. It's your character that matters, right? Everything you're doing, everything you, that is happening is about your character, um, your 
you know, what some might say is the quality of your soul, right? And if that's what you're looking at, you, you, do, you get somewhere very different, right? You, and you end up somewhere very different. What matters to you is very different. So I'll just mm -hmm. add that. In the front row, you had a question? So the, the comment was about intersectionality, the um, spark by Dr. Lightsey questions about the use of bodies and the use of suffering for those who are not suffering, uh, particularly the use of black bodies, connecting that with uh, white use of spirituals and traditions, and linking that all with Mark 7 and healing. So I'm going to try. <laughs> so it's, for me, this, this colonial project, the project of colonialism, uh, that continues to commodify black bodies, um, to profit from the suffering, indeed, to profit from the suffering of black bodies, um, and to cast away uh, those black bodies that are deemed uh, not helpful for the the enterprise of, of capitalism, you know, black bodies that can't earn a dollar bill, at least in the in the in the sense of of the oppressor. I think um, I don't think you're I don't think uh, Kirk that it's such a huge leap to tie the biblical text in here. I don't. Um, because as I think about the biblical text, it was that resource uh, that was used and continues to be used against black bodies. Uh, and so your example in the Marcane text, I think is, is um, an ideal text to think about the ways in which Jesus, uh, the ways in which we seek to tell the story of what we call the good news, uh, continues to, to make subordinate and to hold hostage. And I'm, I'm thinking as I'm talking, to hold hostage for the sake of a person's voyeurism and a voyeurism that seeks to um, to lift the self up over and against the other, how that, that text is used in those ways, and, and how chattel slavery uh, was supported by the text to continue to, to do that. So um, I, I'm just thinking out loud. Sister, may I respond to that? Um, I love the way you just talked about bodies as a part of the economic system. Uh, there is a book called Disability in the History of the United States. And in that book, it talks a lot about black bodies as um, enslaved because of the capitalist um, um, profit that one could gain. Now, if one was in a hurricane and uh, black bodies were weighing one ship that one ships down, then it was perfectly acceptable to take a string of them and just throw them overboard. And those ships, by the way, were insured. So that if they started off one weight in Africa and they came to the Caribbean or the Americas in another weight that was perfectly fine, those bodies that had been lost were insured. And so the captains would make up their minds about whether they should um, risk getting all the bodies there 
or risk only their bodies that they knew uh, they could make a profit from. Now, having said that, um, I remember uh, what, what the book then says is that, um, and, and this was a white man that observed in this um, in a slave ship that he had uh, taken a ride, he said, and so they threw the poor wretches overboard, you know, and they called them, in fact, refuse slaves. Mm-hmm. All right. So bodies of black people have been useful. They have gained capital for the white supremacist system. Okay. And that's how they were useful. Now, black bodies are given certain narrow, um, uh, let's see, how would we say highways or, um, um, oh boy, I can't think of it. Anyway, they're given certain ways that they can be acceptable. And even in that acceptability, there is, that is because of the capital gain that they can be, that they can gain for the supremacist system. So black bodies are acceptable in basketball. They're acceptable in baseball. And most assuredly, they're acceptable and and embraced in football because of the enormous profits and that one can make as a uh, in in the capitalist system. And so you see, I I think that that's I think that that's important. Uh, my body is not going to be as significant as the body of a basketball player, but when they find out that I'm educated and that I'm older and oftentimes when I'm disabled, I I, I will see them actually come up to my car and will have the stance of authority. And then they'll glance down and see my little blue sticker um, board and they'll they'll lighten up their expression, they'll change their body language, and I'll recognize that they don't, they don't want to do what they were about to do to me. And that's kind of startling. Mm-hmm. I guess just to add in there, and it just comes right off of what you're saying, Garth, I'm thinking is, and this is, be- almost going back to what you said in the beginning, Pamela, is about the value of black bodies in high injury places. Right? Maybe that's really what, right? Football, um, war. Um, I mean, or, you know, or in sports where you are old at 30. 30's not old people, right? I mean, you know, where you can expire um, Mm -hmm. too early, right? And that this is then the way that your family eats, right, is dependent on someone's body that's put in harm's way, right? And mm-hmm. that this is the American way of dealing with black bodies. Yes. Right, that this actually is normative and historical and... Precisely. Um, right, and so it's a setup. <laughs> I mean, I don't know how to put it, right? It's a setup for... for mental and brain and physical disabilities. And that, I'm not gonna say something that's gonna change my theology, is that that actually has to be the starting point then. If we're saying, if we know this to be the case, then all black theologies must start there. I mean, right, Pamela? Is that, isn't that kind of what you were saying? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Oh. Justin, did you? Have a comment or question? So the question was about embodied theology. How do we deal with questions of theodicy? And particularly, what do black persons with disabilities have to um, offer and speak to the larger experience of uh, disability in a 
white America? Well, I, I can always answer, but I don't want to over-answer, if you don't mind. I think it's you, um, <laughs> All right, thanks. What did you just say? I'm sorry. You. you can go ahead. Okay, all right. But I, uh, that's my brother over there who just asked the question. We, uh, we're involved in, in Perkins, are we not, brother? Did you say yes? yes. I can't see him. Okay. Um, the disabled body is a body that, in a sense, is very similar to, similarly viewed um, as a potential um, object of interest uh, for uh, demonstrating, I mean, in churches, for demonstrating the power of God's healing love. All right? And um, Jeff Hood, who was an activist in the Dallas area, said something that just absolutely floored me when he said, so, um, disabled bodies are pornographic to everyone. And I said, pornographic? You know, and he said, yes, pornographic. He said, we objectify women uh, when we watch their pornography and men. And so the, uh, the, the bodies of disabled people are pornographic in that sense. And I thought that was amazing. But I've lived with the tension of that statement. You know, our bodies are objects. And we're acceptable if we can get up out of that chair, if we can throw the chair away, if we can jump up and down and run up and down the aisles and say, hallelujah, I'm freed, I'm uh, free at last, free at last, thank God I can walk at last, you know, and, and that's fine. But, 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 it, but we are not acceptable objects if we don't do that. Now, how is that familiar with or, or different from black bodies? Black bodies, as I said before, have been characterized as um, useful to the capitalist expansion program. Um, after the Civil War, they were particularly useful in carrying out uh, the, the uh, genocidal war against First Nations. So the so-called Buffalo Soldiers <laughs> were used extensively uh, to, to damage and harm and physically um, remove uh, Native Americans, First Nations, from their homelands out to these terrible places that we, we then called reservations. Um, so, the, I mean, black bodies have always been useful, whereas the, the body of a disabled person has not been useful. And, and I would say that in a certain way, um, the disabled body can even be useful to spiritual people as quote unquote objects of compassion. If you're a very highly functional uh, disabled person, um, I've had it uh, many times and I've spoken to Monica about this, uh, where we're, we're valued as an inspiration, as, as, as an example of God's glory. I even had one person when they saw me struggle up some stairs where I was sort of struggling with my uh, wheelchair in one hand and struggling to get up one step at a time. And this man came up to me after service and he said, you know, I came in feeling terrible. And I looked and saw how you struggled to get up those stairs. And I said to myself, wow, I shouldn't be upset or mad at God or upset about anything. Because look what he's taking. Look how he's got a smile on his face. And he's an inspiration to me. Okay. So, you know, disabled bodies are inspirational when we can function. 
No. Now, one last thing. Notice that Jewish bodies are not functional, but are just simply hated for a variety of socioeconomic reasons that have to do with uh, economic success of the, the capitalization of uh, and and protection and what do you call it, the saving up of capital. Uh, all those things have then been uh, characterized as. Jews, be, Jews being uh, unsettling for a population, that they had to be removed. And so if they weren't forcefully removed, then we got the Inlonsung of Hitler, who simply said, this is the final solution to this Jewish problem, we'll simply just kill them. And so I, I would say, my friend, that we're kind of in between the black, the solely black the body as useful, and the uh, Jew, whose body isn't viewed as, as being valuable enough to save, but should be exterminated. Okay, and our last comment will come from Julia. So the question was about the importance of treating disability and violence, but not treating disability as tragedy or loss, and this solely as tragedy or loss. Mm. And you know that 85, uh, when, when we look at a population, only 15% of that population, according to the latest figures that I've seen, only 15% are born with disabilities, you know, blindness, uh, all the different con uh, conditions of what we would call disability, which means that 85% of the population is going to face the possibility of waking up in the morning, being so-called normal, and by the end of the day, having their legs taken off, their arms removed, uh, them being, in a sense, disabled. So, I mean, I think that's extraordinary. Yes, I think that's extraordinary. And also, you know, there's that old adage that we hold to, and, and Kendrick and I joke about this, where it says, uh, well, everybody is temporarily able. You know? And so even those that are able right now, it won't be able forever. <laughs> um, I think I have two perspectives on it. One is theological, one's more personal. Um, theologically speaking, I think also it depends on how we think about loss. In process perspectives, loss is an integral part of what it means to be in the world. And not all loss is bad. Loss just is. You can't become something new without losing what you were. Right. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes we lose things we want to we want to hold on to, but the only way to get rid of bad stuff is to lose it, <laughs> and that's true with injustice. It's true with who the experiences you had two years ago, right? It's true if you're a quark, right? That that loss is part of the system. So part of it, I think, may come in rethinking how we think about loss. That everyone, everything experiences loss because that's how we grow. That's how we um, get to experience life. That's how creation happens. Is um, And that we can mourn when we lose things we don't want to lose, things we shouldn't have had to lose, things that were taken from us. And we can rejoice that it's the same process and the same power and the same creativity that gives us good, amazing, wonderful stuff. Um, so I, I put that in there to say that to maybe also say all loss isn't tragedy, <laughs> right? Um, and, and some losses that, are tra that feel tragic at in one point may not feel tragic later. Um, the, the second part I add is I like 
I think the tension is important because it reflects experience, right? Barth named it earlier. Um, I didn't name it. But there is a time when um, you can feel like you're upset with your body. And it's important to be able to name that as part of the experience. Right? Mm -hmm. My body isn't doing what I wanted to do. It's not, you know, right. that there are the, the reason why biblical texts name tensions between body and spirit is because people feel conflicts between body and spirit, right? Um, that, that actually is a, a real part of how people can often feel. Um, and then there also is a place of grace. You named it. I call it self-love. Well, you're like, but this is the me I got. This is the me I am. And this me is pretty darn amazing. <laughs> and so there's no way to be me without this, you know? Um, and so that's not the tragedy or loss. It's the, it's, it is the is, right? It's the, it's the present. And those, I mean, I think of Bell Hooks and herself and her comments about love and that that part of loving who we are and who we're becoming means loving us as we are, right? Um, and, you know, for people who are religious, spirit plays a really, really big part in that. Um, but I think you can get there through non-religious means <laughs> as well, and many people do. So I guess those would be my two comments about the tragedy and loss that we hold, that those tensions are real, um, but there are ways I think that we can wrestle with them. And we are out of time. Thank you for joining us and participating in this great panel. Please join me in thanking all of our panelists. <laughs>